two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so that they turned so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast of baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up! Get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought him out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, O no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace." So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot 
out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Let me say a quick prayer for us. Thank you, O Lord, for the gift of your word. Again, for the the gift of the meal that we just shared together. We ask for the outpouring of your Holy Spirit as we continue to attend scripture together uh, this evening. We pray that by your spirit that we would leave this place being fed, not just with bread, but with the very words of your mouth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we begin Genesis chapter 19, the frame of the narrative contracts from the society-wide kind of anonymous scope of God's or of, of Abraham's negotiations with God in chapter 18 down to a much narrower and much more personal scope. The very judgment of God is about to rain down from heaven, but this event of cosmic proportions is narrated from the vantage of its impact on just one man, Lot and his family. The story is zoomed in on Lot's household. As the story contracts to focus on Lot, so too do the citizens of Sodom contract around Lot's household. The two angels, you remember uh, from last week, they set out ostensibly to see if things are as bad in Sodom as the cry unto heaven has suggested that they are, and to search for any outliers among the depraved inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah, even so few as ten righteous people. But having arrived in Sodom, that search proves entirely unnecessary. Instead of having to search out the righteous, the depravity of the city finds them. And Genesis leaves no doubt that that depravity is, in fact, complete. That's the work that verses 4 and 5, especially verse 4, are doing here. The men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man. So Genesis wants to leave no doubt in your mind that, in fact, this is a thoroughgoing depravity that comprises the entirety of the, of the citizenship of Sodom. All the people of the last man surrounded the house, and they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Throughout our reading tonight, Lot is kind of the consummate lukewarm person in his relationship toward God. He's undecided at every point. He is straddling the line between membership in Sodom and membership uh, and, and a membership that would be uh, a belonging to something better. On the one hand, we can't say that Lot has entirely thrown in his lot, no pun intended, with with Sodom. He's not a full-blown integrated citizen. When we very first see him in in Genesis 19, he's not even all the way inside of the city. He's standing instead at the threshold, at the gate of the city. He, by very obvious contrast, his treatment and reception of these angels, these emissaries who, who instantiate the presence of God, He treats them with the utmost reverence. He is urgently hospitable toward them in ways that even recall the way that Abraham is hospitable toward them. And, of course, he resists the mob that is trying to gang rape them to death. Uh, We can only imagine that that must have been the outcome that these people had in mind. So he's not, he hasn't like totally drunk the Kool-Aid of this place. He's not a full-blown citizen. There is 
an observable difference between him and the citizens of Sodom. Nonetheless, the narrative is clear that Lot has become too much a citizen of Sodom. Even if he's not a full-blown one, he is nonetheless too much a citizen of Sodom. He is far too much at home among the citizenry in the valley. With a bit of irony, the mob itself actually points this fact out in the narrative. They say, this man came here as a sojourner. But having come here as someone sojourning, passing through, Lot's presence in Sodom has now become altogether more permanent. He's moved out of his tent. So when he first decided to go live in the valley, it says that he moved his tent as as far as to Sodom. But at this point, uh, Lot has left his tent behind, and he's moved into a house. And though he's able to see and to name the wickedness of the mob, he is not able to resist the wickedness of the mob, nor even is he able entirely to differentiate himself from the mob. At one point, he calls them brothers. Amid the complex effort of trying to make a home for himself in Sodom, we also can see that Lot has lost perspective. He's become willing to make sacrifices that he absolutely should not make for the sake of getting along with the people in that place. He has let his daughters become engaged to some of the very men who comprise the rapacious mob outside his door, where still he even offers his daughters up readily as prey to that mob in a desperate bargain for the safety of his guests. It may be that Lot has attempted, certainly half-heartedly at best, but it may be that we could, could say that Lot has attempted to maintain some semblance of contrast between himself and the rest of the city. And in fact, I think that uh, if so, that the house that he's living in actually kind of nicely symbolizes that. We can think of the house and its walls, maybe especially the door, you know, that's kind of where all the action kind of takes place is right at the door. We can think of all that as signifying Lot's paradoxical attempt to, on the one hand, to be at home, to really fully be at home in this city, and yet, on the other hand, his failed attempt to maintain any substantive, substantive difference between himself and the city on the other side of that door. The city is getting the better of him. Though he may try to swim against the current, he's overwhelmed by the prevailing ethos of Sodom as a man, as if he were like a man caught in the current of a riptide. The men of the city surge forward against Lot so that he has to be snatched to safety by the very guests that he was trying to protect. But what proves to be even more dangerous than either the mob outside the door or even the very judgment of God from heaven, what's more dangerous than either of those things is Lot's own attachment to his life in Sodom, his own attachment to his life in the city. He knows full well what is about to happen because the angels have told him what's going to happen in no uncertain terms. And he has internalized that information to the degree that he tries urgently to get his sons-in-law to leave, telling them, up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. And if we're not surprised that the sons-in-law are too dissipated to heed that warning, nonetheless, 
it's a bit amazing that the next morning, like a whole night has gone by, the next morning, Lot himself still hasn't left the city. So then in verse 15, the angels have to shout roughly the same urgent warning at Lot that he had shouted at his sons-in-law the night before. Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But we read in verse 16, in response to the angel's warning, we read, he lingered. He lingered. This is one of the gravest, most disturbing moments of this passage. In this moment, as Lot lingers, we should linger long enough to ask some troubling questions. Who's worse off? The men of Sodom, who are so depraved that they can't even take the threat of divine judgment seriously? Or Lot, who does take the impending judgment seriously, who appears to believe that what the angels say is about to happen, will in fact happen, who is able even to warn other people to talk about God's judgment, and yet who, knowing all this, believing all this, cannot bring himself to leave. Whose fate is worse? The, the full citizens of Sodom who are swept away in the fiery, sulfurous barrage of divine wrath, or the fate of Lot's wife, who, refusing the gift of her deliverance, remains half-hearted, even as that deliverance is underway, she remains double-minded and turning back to the thing she's supposed to be fleeing, and so turning into a pillar of salt. Just a quick sidebar here. Uh, this is a part of the story that I still don't feel like I fully understand, but I do just want to point out that whatever's going on in this moment where Lot's wife turns back to the city and looks at it and turns to salt. We need to resist the temptation to read that as if this is kind of like a, there's some kind of magic taking place here where it's just like taboo in this totally theologically unintelligible way. Like God just ordained that, you know, looking at this place, you know, causes a person to turn into a pillar of salt. One of the reasons that we need to recognize that is because Abraham looks at Sodom. Uh, toward the end of our reading, and, and it's really emphasized just how deeply he looks uh, at the destruction of Sodom. He looks full on at it. And so what is decisive is not looking at Sodom. What's decisive is the vantage point from which Sodom is looked at. Abraham is looking, but he's looking from the vantage of having fully decided where his loyalty, where his membership lies where his future lies. At any rate, moving on, we think of this passage, rightly, as chiefly being a story about God's judgment. And it certainly is that. In the New Testament, Jesus himself sees it that way. He uses Sodom and Gomorrah in multiple places in the Gospels as a kind of biblical shorthand for the scorched earth, apocalyptic nature of God's wrath against human sin, which, by the way, Jesus is very much describing not as a feature of the past, but as chiefly as a feature of the future in the, in the New Testament. Nonetheless, even amid the smoke and rubble and actual fire and brimstone, which understandably capture our attention in this story, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is as much or more a story about God's mercy 
as it is a story about God's judgment. The richest detail in the passage and the actual preponderance of its words are devoted to narrating God's deliverance of Lot. So yes, this is the story of God's apocalyptic wrath, but at the same time, it's the story of a rescue mission that God is orchestrating. As much as the impending doom of the city creates the urgency in the passage, the actual commencement of judgment is willfully forestalled. The timeline is kind of held up in the story for the sake of Lot's rescue and deliverance. So, you know, we feel it rushing toward this conclusion, and yet, if you read carefully, it's not hard to feel just how much, you know, the sort of flow of God's wrath is is being kind of interrupted by the purposes of God's mercy in the timeline of the story. In verse 22, the angel tells Lot he can do nothing until Lot reaches safety. In the most basic terms, saying that this is a story about God's grace or God's mercy, it means recognizing that Lot's salvation comes entirely from God. That's what it means to say this is a story about mercy, that his salvation comes entirely from God. Uh, Lot is obviously not just like an uncomplicatedly good person, um, but if there is anything we could say that's good about him or praiseworthy or any merit that he has, whatever good there may be in Lot, that is not why Lot ends up delivered, saved, rescued. The Lord's mercy is especially poignant in verse 16. But Lot lingered, so the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. This is a mercy that overcomes, like literally overcomes Lot's agency. As, as it's faltering in this moment. God's grace intervenes at precisely the moment that the city's hold on Lot is most disturbingly revealed. God physically manhandles Lot and his family out of the city. He takes him where Lot could not will himself to go. The Lord delivers Lot, not only from the mob, not only from judgment, the Lord delivers Lot even from his own indecision from his own unwillingness and inability to take God up on the offer of salvation. The passage also ends with emphasis on God's mercy, with the words, God remembered Abraham. God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. This might be the most theologically challenging detail in this passage. I say it's challenging because most of us Christians in this room, we have an understanding of salvation that is way more individualized than the way the Bible seems to talk about salvation. We have a tendency to think about salvation as being... um, always only between God and like these isolated individuals. We may be on board as such with verse 16 in general, with the idea that salvation is so radically dependent on God 
and not dependent on us, that salvation is like being forcibly hauled away by a couple of angelic bouncers. We might be comfortable with that, but taking a good hard look at verse 29 might make us a little more uncomfortable because there it becomes clear that Lot's salvation has virtually nothing even to do with Lot himself. Nothing to do with him at all. I mean, I think it would be hard to say that this is a, a personal, that God is responding to some, some kind of personal relationship with Lot here. Instead, and alarmingly, Lot's salvation has everything to do with God's relationship with someone else, with Abraham. What's decisive for Lot is the way God's promise to Abraham gets extended to him. It's with reference to someone other than Lot himself, Abraham, that Lot ends up being delivered. God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow. So to move toward reflecting on um, how we might put all of this into practice or find ourselves addressed in in active ways uh, by what we're reading tonight, I think those practical applications are probably to be found in attending the relationship, the scriptural relationship, between the people of God on the one hand and the cities of the world on the other. The people of God on the one hand, the relationship between the people of God and the cities of this world. This is very much a passage not just about specific cities, but about the notion of cities in general. And so far we can say in the book of Genesis that cities are not faring very well. Uh, There have really only been a couple of times that they've showed up, and both times the Lord has decisively acted against them. The first one, of course, being Babel, which is a project that is not just a tower, but it's a city, and it's a project that God decisively thwarts. And now, of course, God is overthrowing Sodom and Gomorrah. And it's not just the book of Genesis that has this uh, sort of, at best, kind of dubious view of the project of cities. Um, Other places in Scripture give the impression, on the whole, that it's almost as if the very project of city-making itself concentrates the ravages of the fall, encrusting the earth with damage like a scab that won't heal and accelerating all that's warped and broken in sinful humanity. Um, That is not the only vision of cities in scripture. So it's not as if it's just the urban itself, right? But I'm just saying this is a motif in scripture. It's a major flavor uh, that scripture seems to have toward the project of cities. There's something about them that tends to go awry, and they tend to find themselves in the crosshairs of God's judgment a lot. All that to say, Christians need to be people who know God as the God who is liable to overthrow cities, that word overthrew is, gets repeated a bunch in this passage, especially at the end. We need to be people who know God as a God who overthrows cities. Uh, and, and keep in mind here that when I say cities, I'm talking about the relationship between the people of God and everything else, the rest of the world. Um, that word overthrew or overthrow may seem like too harsh a word to sort of to make it primary in a Christian understanding of the relationship between, let's just say, the church and the cities of the world. Christians have construed the relationship between the church and the world in a lot of different ways across 
uh, throughout history. And certainly a view that sort of pits the church against the cities of the world is not the only one that's attested uh, in Christian thought. But I, I emphasize it here in part because I think that this more hostile relationship is not something that gets enough attention. And in fact, it's, it actually is emphasized in Scripture, but it tends not to be emphasized in the way that we think about the relationship between the church and the world. Instead, harmonizing or sort of mutually beneficial uh, relationships um, tend to be the kinds that we find most attractive. And I want to admit that there is complexity and nuance in the, rel- in the, uh, in the relevant scriptural data on this question. Nonetheless, Broadly speaking, the Bible seems to emphasize that the people of God exist in sharp contrast to the cities of this world. The Bible, on the whole, seems to emphasize an againstness of the people of God over against the cities of the world. The againstness is rooted not so much in, or maybe not primarily, in uh, a punitive stance on God's part. So the againstness does come from God in a way, but it's not exactly that God's just pissed off at worldliness. Um, rather, the againstness arises first from the world against God. It is in response, remember, to the outcry, to the damage that Sodom and Gomorrah are doing to the Lord's creation that the angels set out in the first place, which is to say that it is firstly the city that is arrayed against God's purposes. And it's, it's that to which the Lord is responding here. When the two angels who are manifestations of the Lord's presence arrive in Sodom, the populace gathers against them with violent uh, intentions as if they are drawn by some violent or by some kind of twisted, distorted instinct, you know? Like, how do they even know that they're there? And yet the entirety of the population almost instinctively marshals itself against these people who other characters in the story have responded to in a way that seems to recognize uh, this as the Lord. This same pattern, it culminates spectacularly and catastrophically in the New Testament, in Jesus' crucifixion. Um, at the hands of um, worldly politicians and powerful uh, citizens who collaborate together to put Jesus to death. As the believers say in Acts chapter 4, for truly in the city, truly in the city, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people's of Israel. It's like a sort of all the citizens of the world are arrayed against the Lord's Messiah. Throughout both scripture and the Christian tradition, membership in the people of God is frequently described, at times suggestively and at other times more overtly, but it's frequently described as a matter of choosing between rival cities. In both scripture and tradition, Membership in the people of God is frequently described in terms of of a choice between rival cities. Jesus is anything but a Boy Scout in the Gospels. He is 
not at all an upstanding citizen of the cities of this world. Instead, Jesus' disposition toward the established cities on the landscape of his day is basically apocalyptic. In Matthew 11, Jesus denounces a litany of cities for their unrepentant reception of him, saying that they are destined for a judgment that's going to be even more devastating than the judgment suffered by Sodom and Gomorrah. If you listen carefully, to go back again to Acts chapter 4, if you listen carefully to the Christians praying together in a place like Acts chapter 4, you'll hear them suggesting that that apocalyptic defeat of earthly cities is not just something in the future, but that it's actually already begun in Jesus's victory over death. Because even as all of these people are arrayed against the Lord's Messiah, they nonetheless find themselves helplessly caught up in designs and purposes that are God's. And God ultimately thwarts those purposes in raising Jesus from the dead. Suffice it to say, the gospel challenges us at the level of membership, at the level of citizenship. Another way of putting this is that the gospel is intrinsically political. It is intrinsically political. The root of that word, politics, is polis, which just means is a Greek word for city. The gospel challenges us at the level of membership and citizenship. And that is something much deeper and more thoroughgoing than the question of individual sin. It is even something much deeper and more thoroughgoing than the question of and whether or not we should hang out with this friend group or another friend group. I feel like at times that's, that's a sort of predictable way that we might interpret this passage, right? You know, sort of bad morals corrupt good character or whatever. Um, but there's something deeper going on here uh, than, than the question of who we hang out with or, or than vigilance uh, about being influenced negatively by sinful people because the gospel is challenging us at the level of membership and citizenship. Genesis 19 reminds us that God's mercy is supposed to displace us. God's mercy is supposed to displace us from the cities of this world. It's supposed to send us out from the ways that we have become at home in the cities of this world. And it is supposed to gather us into a different people, into a different political project that is called the church. Genesis 19 suggests, moreover, that, so I, I think it would, be, it would not be wrong to read this story, to read Genesis 19 as a story that calls us to reflect upon the way that our desires, um, that, that we are tempted by sin sort of in the abstract. Uh, but a more accurate reading would be to recognize the way that this story um, highlights the way that cities exert a magnetic pull on our desire that rivals citizenship, a citizenship other than the citizenship into which the Lord in his mercy is driving us, the way that cities exert a magnetic pull upon our desire. It's not simply sin in the abstract that Lot finds it so hard to leave. It's his life in Sodom that he's so dangerously attached to. 
The story of Sodom and Gomorrah invites us to consider our own attachment to the worldly city. That attachment is most pervasively an attachment to wealth and prosperity and material promise. I'm doing a lot of summarizing here when I say that, but what I, what I base that claim upon is back again in, Gen- in chapter 13, whenever Lot first looks down in the valley, what he sees amounts to wealth and prosperity and opportunity for the accumulation of wealth and, and the gaining of security. Likewise, if we look in the New Testament and uh, at the people who follow Jesus, Jesus who is not at all at home in the world. Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Jesus is dependent upon other people's hospitality. He, he wanders uh, around from one place to the next. And, and obeying Jesus, it's not hard to see that if we actually put what Jesus tells us to do into practice rigorously and robustly, it is not likely to make anyone rich, you know? Arguably, if you're really following Jesus, it might be impossible, actually, to become a, a truly uncomplicated, uncomplicatedly wealthy person. That much should be evident just on the pages of Scripture itself. Um, and I just want to testify that, that that is the case. I'm testifying on the basis of my own experience in my life and, and in the lives of the people who I know. So the story of Sodom and Gomorrah invites us to consider our attachment to the worldly city. And very in the broadest terms, the most encompassing way that we can begin to see that attachment is by recognizing the way that hitching our wagon to worldly political projects, what's in it for us is wealth, usually, and security. Relatedly, attachment to the worldly city is an attachment to safety and to certainty. The angels tell Lot to flee into the hills, which incidentally is the place that Lot would be liable to run into Abraham. But Lot is afraid to dwell in the wilderness, in an unsettled land, even as he's finally been driven out of of Sodom. um, He's afraid to live in a tent. He's afraid to live towards something that is not yet built, something that's not fully permanently realized on the landscape yet. And so the only thing he can imagine doing is at least going over to this smaller neighboring city. That's actually going to, he's going to continue to be undecisive about that in, in what follows. But likewise, our attachment to the cities of the world, it's an attachment to the status quo. It's an attachment to the way things already are. It is an imaginative laziness and a failure of faith. But it takes work to recognize that that's what it is, that our attachment to worldly cities is an imaginative laziness and a failure of faith. It takes work to recognize it as such. Because most of the time, that aspect of our attachment to the worldly city is described by Christians and non-Christians as just the opposite. It's, It's something that's not blamed, but instead it's praised. People call it being realistic or being practical or living in the real world. It's a habit of reading the Bible and therefore unavoidably, on almost every freaking page of it, encountering the beautiful vision that God has, not for individuals, but for a city. The beautiful vision that God has for a people whose life takes concrete shape 
on the globe. But it's a habit of reading the Bible and seeing that and then immediately responding to what we see on the pages of Scripture with the word can't. We can't actually do that. And then we go on to explain why. It's just not practical in the real world to live the life that the people of God are called to live on the pages of Scripture. Attachment to the earthly city is excusing ourselves from responsibility to to throw our effort into making something better in the name of the Lord than what people who are not worshiping Jesus are capable of making. So it's a hopelessness. It's a hopelessness. If instead we are willing to let God dislodge us in the way his mercy is supposed to, if we're willing to let God dislodge us from our citizenship in worldly cities, it really will mean leaving something behind, like actually leaving some stuff behind. It will mean actually foregoing some opportunities that would be nice not to forego. It will mean actually incurring some costs and risks that we wouldn't otherwise incur. It will mean leaving something. In the Gospels, Jesus, um, this is like right after Jesus has been, it's right after he talks to the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler walks away sad because of his great possessions. And Jesus is like, man, it's freaking hard to be rich and, and enter the kingdom of heaven. And people are like, and he's like, no, I'm serious. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And in the immediate aftermath of Jesus' teaching uh, on wealth, hang on, I lost my place here. Um, the disciples remind him that they have left everything behind. Um, they're like, we're not rich. Uh, they're like, we've left all of our stuff. We've left everything behind for the sake of following you and for the sake of the gospel. And Jesus says, um, yeah, people that have left behind houses. Let me actually just read you the, what it says here. It says in Mark chapter 10 um, that I'm thinking of. Jesus responds, truly I say to you, there's, I don't think I have this on your sheet, so just, you can just listen to my sultry voice. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. Sounds, sounds like a, a concrete thing that's in the world, doesn't it? Now and here, with persecutions, he says, and in the age to come, eternal life. So Jesus says that they will receive as they leave the earthly city behind. They will receive a membership in, uh, still in this lifetime anew. All those things that they leave behind, they will receive again. And in fact, in the pages of the New Testament, we see Jesus making good on that promise, especially in the book of Acts. In places like Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4, um, people sell all their stuff and they contribute to a common purse and they start spending all of their time together. And nobody says that his house is his house because everybody else is in that house all the freaking time. And all the food that's in the fridge, everybody's eating it because they're eating their food with glad and generous hearts day by day. And the Lord keeps adding to their number those uh, who are being saved. That's Jesus making good on his promise in the Gospels that the people that leave their stuff, 
their membership in the worldly city, that he's going to build them a new one along very different lines. I mean, what's going on with wealth there? Radically different than what's going on with wealth in any merely earthly city. They forge profound and intimate relationships in the body of Christ in a rhythm and an economy that is, is new. Um, they, have new, they have new family members. They had to leave their family members behind. They have a, a real family now that they didn't have before. That's the church. The word for that is church. The church, in the emergence of the church in Scripture, something like a subversive city within the larger city concretely emerges. A subversive city inside the existing city emerges wherever the gospel spreads across the globe in the story of Acts. And people start doing strange and disruptive things with their time and their relationships and their property and their money. For the first century Christians, the notion of the city set on the hill that Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount, for first century Christians, the notion of the city set on the hill is not just poetic, symbolic language. It's a concretely experienced reality. It's an embodied reality that they are like, yeah, that's what we're doing. We're being the city set on the hill. It's a substantive reality. Indeed, the first century Christians discover that that city, the city that Jesus gives them in giving birth to the church, they discover that that city is in fact more real and more powerful than the pagan cities of the world. The resilience of the city on the hill is not a matter of brick and mortar. Rather, the resilience of that city on the hill resides in the fact that it's an earthly outpost of the kingdom of God. The power of that city derives not from military strength. It doesn't come from the power to deal out death. Just the opposite. The power of the city on the hill comes from Jesus' resurrection from the dead and from the gift of the Holy Spirit, who Jesus pours out from the right hand of the Father. We contemporary American Christians, however, we can scarcely conceive of an experience like that. When we think of church, that's not what we think of, a political embodied peoplehood in the world. That's not what we think of. Because we've been brought, we have been brought up and we have bought into the lie that Christianity can be safely sequestered into the realm of the so-called spiritual or the so-called religious. And we think what that means is exactly the opposite of anything political or economic. But in the Bible, it's clear that salvation is supposed to be experienced as a transfer of membership from one city to another. In baptism, God seizes us bodily, like the angels manhandling Lot. He drags us out of membership in every earthly city, and he members us to the church, the body of Christ, which is supposed to be that city set on a hill in the world. Usually, however, we live our lives, even after we come out of the baptismal waters, we live our lives after the fashion of Lot, at best trying to straddle the line between the earthly city and God's city, but for all practical purposes, belonging way more to the world than we do to the church that God wants to build here. Emerging from the waters of baptism, the Lord sets us on our way toward a future and a political project 
that moves toward redemption and healing rather than toward oblivion and annihilation. But so often we wind up contributing nothing to that project that God's trying to send us off toward. Too often our baptism is politically stillborn because like Lot's wife, we keep looking back yearningly over our shoulder at Sodom even while we know that its doom is imminent. The good news, however, is that God's mercy is alive and active in the world. God keeps on pursuing us, being merciful to us, giving us chance after chance to choose his city. The good news is that even as Lot's wife turns to salt, even as Lot continues to flounder around in his indecisive, lukewarm fecklessness, there is also Abraham up on the hill gazing at the ruin of Sodom, a sign and a foretaste of that city Jesus envisions in the Gospels, that city that Jesus makes possible when he pours out the gift of his Holy Spirit. The figure of Abraham above the valley is the hope and the possibility of being members of a people that is not bent toward destruction, but instead a people that is born out of covenant, out of God's merciful purposes in Jesus of Nazareth. The good news is that even if we have grown so attached to the cities of this world that we cannot remember a better way, God does remember. Amen.